suffering in view of the cross is the title of the series of our study in the book of Job. Uh, In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, points out that almost all cultures in all of history have found meaning and purpose in suffering. Uh, In describing the way that many in the naturalistic Western world look at suffering, though, Keller says, in the secular view, this material world is all there is. And so the meaning of life is to have freedom to choose the life that makes you most happy. Sounds like our preamble to our Declaration of Independence, does it not? All men are given this inalienable right, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. It's kind of what we believe. However, in that view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part. It's a complete interruption of your life story. It cannot be a meaningful part of your story. Suffering is a complete interruption of life and our pursuit of happiness. That's why we pay others to eliminate or at least mitigate our suffering. Doctors, psychiatrists, insurance agents, lawyers. I was reminded this week of a story I'm sure I heard years ago. A doctor and a lawyer were out in a social setting and people kept coming up to the doctor, kept coming. Can you give me advice about this, advice about that? And finally the lawyer said, or the doctor said to the lawyer, I'm sure you get this all the time, people asking your advice. What do you do? He says, well, I give them advice and then I send them a bill in the mail. And so the doctor's not feeling, you know, he, he sleeps on that a night or two. And very timidly, he's, he's written bills to people that, you know, have asked his advice. And he goes out to the mailbox, and there's a bill from the lawyer. <clears throat> I don't usually tell jokes like that, but those kind of jokes, that, that was funny, though. But you just think about how we do that. We, we seek somebody to help us with our pain because this is not right. It's not natural. Believers have a better perspective than most, but, <clears throat> but the world's expectations of success and comfort and freedom, freedom from suffering especially, those expectations have found their way into the church more often than not, in the form of the prosperity gospel. If you have troubles that don't go away, it okay, so it might not be that you've committed some sin, but clearly there's a lack of faith on your part. Do you know how many people told my wife, told me when Linda was dying with the brain tumor, I'm just thanking God for what he's already done. He's already healed you. Now we're just going to believe it and watch it happen. So she died. What happened? She didn't have enough faith. She didn't believe God properly. That's what's crept into the church. From a biblical perspective, it's nonsense. You may believe differently, and I don't mean to just completely blow away what you believe, but it's nonsense to think 
that God will heal all of you. How long until Jesus comes back? I don't see any 150-year-old people living. What happened? Did God not heal them? What happened to their faith when they died at 98? Where is it? Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, is one of the three books that I'm currently reading. I'm trying to do it. I'm reading a chapter at a time in each of these three books I'm going to mention to you. Uh, This this book uh, is an excellent book, but I've got to tell you, if you haven't thought about some of the philosophical issues he deals with in the first chapter, the first part of the book is, is pretty philosophical, and you may actually want to go to, to the second part of the book, and he says so as well. Uh, Tully and Tavigian's book, Glorious Ruin, How Suffering Sets You Free, is a bit more accessible, and this book is based around the book of Job. All three books talk about Job. You can't help but talk about Job when you're considering the topic of suffering. I've got to tell you, this is a fantastic book. This is a fantastic book. Some of you should be ordering it on your Kindle as I speak. If you follow Chavidjian on Twitter, then you read a lot about grace and gospel. Those truths are, are permeate this book. Also, well worth reading is Michael Horton's offering, A Place for Weakness, Preparing Yourself for Suffering. See, we never really prepare for suffering, do we? Now, we're scared all the time that God is preparing us for suffering. Oh, boy, what's he doing? It usually doesn't work that way, but... We ought to be ready, and and what happens, we're not ready for suffering, so when it comes on us, we panic. We don't know what to do. Horton is my current favorite theologian and the provoker of some of the thoughts today about antiphonal response to which David has already alerted us. That back and forth, it's part of God's creation. It's part of the order of things. We'll get to that a little more uh, fully in a few moments. Job Job was in a mess. I mean, he was not privileged to live through suffering, the suffering to which God had called him as we are in view of the cross. He didn't have an understanding of the cross and how it all plays in to our suffering. And, so, and his suffering was intense. Just think of all that Job lost. He lost wealth and security. And look, at our culture, that's no big deal until you lose it. I mean, you know, we've got safety nets everywhere. Nobody's going hungry. Everybody can get by. Again, until you lose it. And he also lost the means to regain his wealth and security. He lost all of his animals. He lost his children. Job lived in a day, in fact, all of history lived in a day until just recently, in which children were an economic asset, not an economic liability. That's why you don't have so many children, because they're a liability. How are you going to pay for it? Well, I just don't think it would be right to have all these children and not be able to pay for their college education. We are funny people. 
Job lost animals. He lost his children, for goodness sakes, and all the servants. He had nothing left. But it wasn't just economic disaster. He lost his dignity, the respect that he had amongst others. I mean, surely some had been jealous, but now they were suspicious. What has Job done to bring all of this on him? Look, it's, it's that cry today. It was in Jesus' time. John 9, remember? Lord, who is sin? This man or his parents? Somebody sinned in order for this man to be born blind. Jesus said neither, but that the glory of God might be seen. We're going to see that over and over, that theme. He had lost his peace of mind even at night. Job 7, 13 to 15. When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. Isn't that one of the worst things about suffering when you're really suffering? That you can't sleep at night? He had lost his children and children for whose safety he had consistently prayed. Furthermore, it was a natural disaster that killed his children. Lightning killed the sheep. A wind blew down the building, the house in which the children were celebrating a birthday, most likely, of one of the, one of the siblings. <clears throat> what do you tend to think in things like that? I mean, look, remember the pastor in the Houston area three or four years ago was electrocuted in the baptismal pool, died because... The water and the electricity mixed. I mean, you automatically think, whoa, whoa, is that a message? I mean, you can't help but think it. I'm not going there. I mean, if I kill over with a heart attack, don't you dare think that while I'm preaching, you know. But we, we can't help it. We do. We just think those ways. This is the judgment of God on his life. Job lost his health loathsome sores what did he do to deserve this he lost the companionship of his wife she's never mentioned again from what we can ascertain what we can speculate by what we see about Job he was monogamous Didn't have multiple wives. His wife says, curse God and die. And no longer do we hear from her. It's highly unlikely that she was the mother of the next ten children that we see at the end. Most of all, Job lost a sense of relationship with God. Can you imagine being more alone than Job? Only Jesus. Remember in Mark, we were just talking not long ago that every step Jesus took into the garden, he was more and more alone. 
Job prefigures Jesus in this way. Why? Why was Job allowed to suffer? Even God said to Satan, there is no one like Job on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Blameless, not sinful, but blameless. Why would God make such use of Satan to accomplish his purposes by allowing such suffering? Christopher Ashe, who has written a marvelous commentary on Job, Job that some of our home group leaders are using, has this to say about Job. The more I have bashed my head against the text of Job year after year, pretty accurate analogy for those who spend a lot of time in Job, the more deeply convinced I have become that the book ultimately makes no sense without the obedience of Jesus Christ. His obedience to death on a cross. Job is not every man. He is not even every believer. There is something desperately extreme about Job. He foreshadows one man whose greatness exceeded even Job's, whose sufferings took him deeper than Job, and whose perfect obedience to his father was only anticipated in faint outline by Job. Close quote. Job's suffering was indeed extreme. Last week, we encountered disaster after disaster with Job. This morning, we will sense his agony when, after seven days, sitting with torn clothes and ashes on his head, Job opens his mouth to give voice to the painful emotions that have welled up inside of him as he sat in silence. Although there were expressions of agony in Job throughout the book of Job, our reading today is going to be the third chapter of Job. Just to get a taste, just to get a sense of his torment. And perhaps you have felt similar. It's our custom to stand as we read scripture. Occasionally we don't, like last week when we're working our way through in a particular manner. But this morning I'm going to ask you to stand and we will be reading from the ESV. And can I make this we, would you please stand? Can I make this we typically I would read? If one of you guys up front wants to volunteer to come up and read this, great. If not, we will read as a group. Would you read it? Okay, Scott, come on up. Scott was the first to to move. I was thinking about asking Bert, and I thought that would not be fair. So, thank you. I'm going to try and read off the screen around this little iPod here. All right, Job 3, starting in verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. 
Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for a hidden treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Let's pray. Father, Many of us have felt that way. Some of us have been honest enough to express it. Lord, um, <clears throat> as we learn from our brother Job to be honest about expressing our agony, may we also be imbued with the hope of Christ through his cross. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Beautifully read, Scott. Thank you very much. You can't help but sense the emotion, can you, as you, as you go into this grief, this spoken grief of Job. When our children were young, we used to teach them to play verbal tennis. <clears throat> when someone says... <laughs> How are you? What is your name? How are you? What is your name? My name is Michael. <clears throat> Don't let the ball just go by, you know. Hit it back. Say, I'm Michael. What's your name? My name is so-and-so. And, and keep the conversation going. Don't just say, How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. How is your day going? So we were teaching them to go back and forth. I, I've been on both ends of awkward conversations when there's silence. I've been the one who is silent, and I've had other people, you know, who were just silent. It's really awkward when you ask a person a question, and it's not like they, you know, hit the ball into the net. It's kind of like they go. 
And you're just standing there, you know, saying, say something, man. Let me ask you something. When you're crossways with your spouse or your roommate or your good friend or your fellow worker at your company, your place of work, would you rather have cross words or sometimes strong words or silence? We'll take a poll. We'll ask the men first and then the women. No, I think we know what the, you know, the men would say, quiet, please. And the women would say, no, let's talk about it. Let's talk. Look, even if you think you want silence, you don't really. You want, you may have a little peace for a bit. But too much silence is a bad thing. We were made to communicate. Antiphonal response has been God's design since the dawn of creation, as David has already pointed out. In the beginning, God said, God created the heavens and earth, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. Let the earth sprout, and the earth responded. It brought forth vegetation. It's back and forth. At weddings, ministers ask, do you? And both man and woman say, I do, I do. At football stadiums, for goodness sake, you hear, tar, heels, you heard that for the first 44 seconds yesterday. And then, you know, after they fumbled and, and, and Virginia Tech scored, it was silent. It really was. It was silent. The whole, it was just nothing. Wolf, pack, not so much that either. I mean, even, not even in, in homes around the triangle was that being said. But we like to. Listen, if noise bothers you, silence can be much, much worse. It may be peaceful for a time, but it gets old. So husbands, when you come in and your wives have had no adult conversation all day and you just want to relax, it's look, how would you have liked to have traded places for the day? We're natured a certain way. Men don't want to talk. Women do. Not always the case. <clears throat> Allison would probably put the percentages much more even if not even tilted the other way. But nobody likes silence. And it's especially true when you're suffering. Suffering tends to weed out distraction. See, when, when we say, oh, look, I'd rather be quiet than to have this argument going on, that's because we can distract ourselves with television and, and reading and, and <clears throat> Internet and all of But suffering sort of weeds all of that out. Nothing looks as good as it used to before you were suffering. When the heavens are silent... We assume that something is badly wrong. Because that's where our attention goes during suffering. It goes to the heavens. And when we hear nothing, when we're designed to be in communication, something's wrong. In fact, we assume the worst. I mean, it's bad enough to be in deep struggle, but for God to be silent is almost more than we can bear. And that's where Job sat. No communication with God, or rather no communication from God. Job was offering a lot of communication, but it was bouncing back. There was nothing. 
right up to the time that he suffered. Job had followed this, this formula, which was, in some senses, antiphonal interaction. Obey God, he will bless you. Bless you. He will pour out his blessings on you. But again, something was badly wrong. Job expressed his frustration with God's silence in, in Job 9, 19 to 21. <clears throat> Look, we're all suffering here, okay? Me, you, listening to this voice, I'm, I'm so sorry. Somebody stand up and read this for us. Bert, would you do that? Just, just read it right where you are. Well, those are questions bordering on accusation, are they not? And God's response? Since Job lived with a law mentality, do the right things and God will be pleased with you. And since Job could not imagine what he had done wrong, he was more than perplexed. Some of you have been incredibly health conscious. You have denied yourself all kinds of good food so that you could remain healthy. And you have cancer or some other debilitating disease. Some of you did everything right in your marriage to the best of your ability. And your spouse walked away. Some of you were model employees at your place of business. And you were the first to be downsized. Some of you have made integrity your highest priority. And you were accused. This is what you hear from heaven. I think Christopher Ashe was on to something when he says that Job's suffering prefigure the sufferings of Christ. There are major differences, of course, which are going to be pointed out along the way. But there are some striking similarities. Just think of the parallels. Job was blameless. Jesus was sinless. Job doesn't claim to be sinless. Sinless, We'll see that. He, he acknowledges his iniquity and his sin. But he was blameless. God said so. He was just about as close as you can get. Jesus was sinless. Job pleaded for an explanation for his suffering. Jesus, knowing what his suffering was going to be, begged God that it might be avoided. In both cases, suffering was extreme. And in both cases, the heavens were silent. We're going to see in just a few minutes that God heard Jesus. But it doesn't say he responded, which was a response in and of itself. Job couldn't figure that out. 
If on the cross Jesus suffered the equivalent of an eternity in hell for me, then just think, think of him, him knowing what was going to happen. Think of what his agony in the garden must have been as he faced the prospect of burying my sin and being separated from God. Job keenly sensed a separation from God, but Job was wrong. Just because God was silent didn't mean that he was not totally focused on Job. His attention was on Job. His loving kindness and care was on Job even as he suffered. Not so with Jesus. Not only did God pour out his wrath on Jesus as we will remember at his table today. But he turned away. Separated. Jesus was separated from the love of God. Again, in those 24 hours in the garden, less than 24 in the garden, and in His trial and crucifixion, the equivalent of an eternity in hell. Jesus knew what was coming when he was in in the garden and he sweated great drops of blood. Was this where Jesus learned obedience? Look at Hebrews 5. Some difficult verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. God, please let this cup pass from me. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, Hebrews 12, which... Text we will return to later in this study of Job. Jesus, I mean, children learn obedience through chastisement. This was not chastisement from the Lord on his son who had been disobedient. What this is saying is that Jesus fulfilled all obedience through what he suffered. Job was of Adam. And he could not respond perfectly. It was impossible for him to respond perfectly to the suffering that God allowed in his life. Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, was the last Adam. And it was crucial for our salvation that Jesus get right what Adam got wrong. What Job didn't fully understand. That's what made him... (coughs) An eligible sacrifice for my sin, for your sin. Believers are often eternally grateful for the cross, but they fail to appreciate the importance and the necessity of Jesus living a sinless life. And because of his suffering in the garden, he understands our suffering far better than we do. Job, living with the law mentality, wanted to justify himself. Answer me, God. Tell me, why do you do these things to me? 
Jesus said, in essence, even though I tremble at the thought of this great suffering, you do the right thing, God. In other words, Jesus justified his father. The benefit for those who believe is that in turn, God justifies them. When we believe, he justifies us. He declares Jesus' perfect obedience to count as our righteousness. That's an amazing thing. And when believers suffer, they do so in view of the cross and experience communion with Christ that is not possible apart from pain. Once again, Christopher Ash. If Job is a prophet, then at the heart of his life was the Spirit of Christ indicating within him something about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 1 Peter 1.11, we're going to read that in just a moment. Sometimes for the prophets, this meant living out in anticipation something of the sufferings of Christ as it did for Hosea when he was called to marry the immoral woman, Gomer. For Job, perhaps supremely among the prophets, the call of God on his life was to anticipate the perfect obedience of Christ. Anticipate the perfect obedience of Christ's suffering, yes, but Job did not fully model Obedience. Jesus is the only person to ever live a perfectly obedient life. And he did so at a high cost. Because of Jesus' agony, not only do we have the hope of heaven, but we have joy in this life being assured that God is working his perfect plan to make me beautiful in Christ. In home groups this week, you are going to examine 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. As we move towards the Lord's table, let's pause long enough to drink in the promises of God for those who suffer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, Peter is writing to people who are about to go through enormous suffering because of their stand for Jesus. And he said, okay, suppose you've been grieved by these different trials. It's necessary. What you're suffering is necessary. Whatever you're suffering right now, it's necessary. Even so, why Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
That's a big deal. Peter had seen Jesus. He said, you, you haven't seen him and you love him anyway. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's not just for the future. It's right now you are rejoicing with joy. And then here's some of Job's problem including these last three verses, just think about all the Old Testament saints. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ The Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And verse 12. We got one more PJ there. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that now that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Look, see, this, there's so much, there is so much symmetry in this universe. God puts things together in spectacularly ordered ways, but we don't get the big picture. Just think about the first two books of the Bible and the last two books of the Bible. First two of Genesis, this perfect garden. Last two of, of Revelation, this perfect city. It just, it's, it's all as it should be. Job was serving us, suffering the ways that he did. Because now we look back on the sufferings of Job and we see the sufferings of Christ and the agony that Jesus endured being alone and separated from God. And we know that we no longer have to ever feel alone. Not only do we not have to feel like Jesus felt, we don't even have to feel like Job felt. Alone. Job was serving us. And you know what happens? When you suffer, you know what? You're serving the rest of us. You're serving the people in your neighborhood. You're serving the people at work. When you suffer and you trust God. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the elders and deacons and worship team to come forward to prepare for the Lord's table. Maybe you've been suffering and you've just said, is there any purpose? Oh, yes, there is so much purpose. And when you suffer well, and by the way, I'll talk about this during this series. That includes dying well, when you die well. You point to Jesus. Sometimes the suffering is beyond us, especially if you're suffering emotionally and psychologically and there are physiological things going on. It's difficult. It's difficult. 
the more we trust God that he has called us to this life, whatever it is he's called us to endure, the more we understand what our Savior has done for us and appreciate it, and the more we communicate to the world there is a price to pray, pay for sin in this fallen world, not when you suffer, it is not. It could be because of your sin, but as often as not, well more often than not, it's just the result of a broken world. And when you receive, as Job said early on, evil as well as good from the hand of the Lord, you give testimony to his existence and oddly enough to his love for you. No better expression of his love than at this table when we come to participate, 1 Corinthians 10 says, in the body and blood of Christ. It doesn't mean that these elements become the body of Christ, but it means there's something very special about our gathering here today. We recall that Jesus' body was broken, his blood was spilled, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And rather than be separated from God for eternity, we are blessed with the knowledge that God loved us enough to send his Son, who perfectly obeyed. And then that innocent, utterly innocent man was not only nailed to the cross, but far worse, the wrath of God was poured out on him. As the father turned his face away, saying, I am not pleased with you because you are bearing Brad Talley's sin. But now, when God looks at Brad Talley, he sees Jesus, and it blows my mind, but he says, I am pleased with you. My sin, he traded his righteousness for my sin. And my sin is laid aside, and now his righteousness defines me. If you are here today, and you believe that Jesus died for you, then we invite you to participate with us at this table. If you want to affirm, express your belief in Jesus today, oh, maybe you've been expecting that God would look at your good works and he would be pleased enough to let you into heaven. Um... But you say, now I see my only hope is in Jesus. I confess my sin and I believe that Jesus died for me. Come and express it in taking this communion. That would, nothing would be better. If you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, then please be honest with yourself and don't partake. 
You can come forward as people do and just walk through and, and, and not partake. And there may be other reasons, but let me just encourage you, if you're a believer and you've sinned and you say, oh, I'm not worthy, to, none of us is worthy ever. Our worthiness is in Jesus Christ. Right now, just say, Lord, I repent. I confess my sin. And then partake. And don't worry about what that confession means, that you're going to have to go off and do something to make something right. That's, that'll be taken care of. You come and say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. I can't get this done on my own. I, I, I'm not worthy. Lord, as we gather at your table, then, Lord, meet us. And may we understand Jesus' agony. And may our, oh, our relationship with our sin cause us to be sorrowful. And at the same time, as First Peter tells us, we rejoice with inexpressible joy because of the life that we have in Christ. So this table is both sorrow and celebration wrapped up in one. And in partaking of this bread and of this fruit of the vine that represent the body and blood of Christ, we anticipate that Jesus will return and our hope will be fully realized. We long for that day when suffering is done. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering for us that we might have that hope. In Christ's name, amen.